Section 14 of History of Henry the Fourth, King of France and Navarre by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 The Houses of Valois, of Guise, and of Bourbon. Part 1. At this time in France, there were three illustrious and rival families prominent above all others. Their origin was lost in the remoteness of antiquity. Their renown had been accumulating for many generations through rank and wealth and power and deeds of heroic and semi-barbarian daring. As these three families are so blended in all the struggles of this most warlike period, it is important to give a brief history of their origin and condition. 1. The House of Valois More than a thousand years before the birth of Christ we get dim glimpses of France, or as it was then called, Gaul. It was peopled by a barbarian race divided into petty tribes or clans, each with its chieftain, and each possessing undefined and sometimes almost unlimited power. Age after age rolled on, during which generations came and went like ocean billows, and all Gaul was but a continued battlefield. The history of each individual of its countless millions seems to have been that he was born, killed as many of his fellow creatures as he could, and then having acquired thus much of glory, died about fifty years before the birth of christ caesar with his conquering hosts swept through the whole country causing its rivers to run red with blood until the subjugated gauls submitted to roman sway in the decay of the roman empire about four hundred years after christ the franks from germany a barbarian horde as ferocious as wolves penetrated the northern portion of gaul and obtaining permanent settlement there gave the whole country the name of france Clovis was the chieftain of this warlike tribe. In the course of a few years, France was threatened with another invasion by combined hordes of barbarians from the north. The chiefs of the several independent tribes in France found it necessary to unite to repel the foe. They chose Clovis as their leader. This was the origin of the French monarchy. He was but little elevated above the surrounding chieftains, but by intrigue and power perpetuated his supremacy. For about three hundred years the family of Clovis retained its precarious and oft-contested elevation. At last, this line, enervated by luxury, became extinct, and another family obtained the throne. This new dynasty under Pepin was called the Carlovingian. The crown descended generally from father to son for about two hundred years, when the last of the race was poisoned by his wife. This family has been rendered very illustrious, both by Pepin and by his son, the still more widely renowned Charlemagne. Hugh Capet then succeeded in grasping the scepter, and for three hundred years the Capets held at bay the powerful chieftains who alternately assailed and defended the throne. Thirteen hundred years after Christ, the last of the Capets were born to his tomb, and the feudal lords gave the preeminence to Philip of Valois. For about two hundred years the House of Valois had reigned. At the period of which we treat in this history, luxury and vice had brought the family near to extinction. Charles the Ninth, who now occupied the throne under the rigorous rule of his infamous mother, was feeble in body and still more feeble in mind. He had no child, and there was no probability that he ever would be blessed with an heir. His exhausted constitution indicated that a premature death was his inevitable destiny. 
His brother Henry, who had been elected King of Poland, would then succeed to the throne. But he had still less of manly character than Charles. An early death was his unquestioned doom. At his death, if childless, the house of Valois would become extinct. Who then should grasp the rich prize of the scepter of France? The house of Guise and the house of Bourbon were rivals for this honour, and were mustering their strength and arraying their forces for the anticipated conflict. Each family could bring such vast influences into the struggle that no one could imagine in whose favour victory would decide. Such was the condition of the House of Valois in France in the year 1592. 2. Let us now turn to the House of Guise. No tale of fiction can present a more fascinating collection of romantic enterprises and of wild adventures than must be recorded by the truthful historian of the House of Guise. On the western banks of the Rhine, between the river and the Meuse, there was the Dukedom of Lorraine. It was a state of no inconsiderable wealth and power, extending over a territory of about ten thousand square miles and containing a million and a half inhabitants. René II, Duke of Lorraine, was a man of great renown, and in all the pride and pomp of feudal power he energetically governed his little realm. His body was scarred with the wounds he had received in innumerable battles, and he was ever ready to head his army of fifty thousand men, to punish any of the feudal lords around him who trespassed upon his rights. The wealthy old duke owned large possessions in Normandy, Picardy, and various other of the French provinces. He had a large family. His fifth son, Claude, was a proud-spirited boy of sixteen. René sent this lad to France, and endowed him with all the fertile acres and the castles and the feudal rights which in France pertained to the noble house of Lorraine. Young Claude of Lorraine was presented at the court of Saint-Cloud as the Count of Guise, a title derived from one of his domains. His illustrious rank, his manly beauty, his princely bearing, his energetic mind and brilliant talents immediately gave him a great prominence among the glittering throng of courtiers. Louis Twelfth was much delighted with the young Count, and wished to attach the powerful and attractive stranger to his own house by an alliance with his daughter. The heart of the proud boy was, however, captivated by another beauty who embellished the court of the monarch, and turning from the princess royal, he sought the hand of Antoinette, an exceedingly beautiful maiden of about his own age, a daughter of the house of Bourbon. The wedding of this young pair was celebrated with great magnificence in Paris, in the presence of the whole French court. Claude was then but sixteen years of age. A few days after this event, the infirm old king espoused the young and beautiful sister of Henry the Eighth of England. The Count of Guise was honoured with the commission of proceeding to Boulogne with several princes of the blood to receive the royal bride. Louis soon died, and his cousin Francis I ascended the throne. Claude was by marriage his cousin. He could bring all the influence of the proud house of Bourbon and the powerful house of Lorraine in support of the king. His own energetic, fearless, war-loving spirit invested him with great power in those barbarous days of violence and blood. Francis received his young cousin into high favour. Claude was indeed a young man of very rare accomplishments. 
his prowess in the jousts and tournaments then so common and his grace and magnificence in the drawing-room rendered him an object of universal admiration one night claude accompanied francis i to the queen's circle she had gathered around her the most brilliant beauty of her realm in those days woman occupied a very inferior position in society and seldom made her appearance in the general assemblages of men the gallant young count was fascinated with the amiability and charms of those distinguished ladies and suggested to the king the expediency of breaking over the restraints which long usage had imposed and embellishing his court with the attractions of female society and conversation the king immediately adopted the welcome suggestion and decided that throughout the whole realm women should be freed from the unjust restraint to which they had so long been subject guise had already gained the goodwill of the nobility and of the army and he now became a universal favourite with the ladies and was thus the most popular man in france francis i was at this time making preparations for the invasion of italy and the count of guise though but eighteen years of age was appointed commander-in-chief of a division of the army consisting of twenty thousand men in all the perils of the bloody battles which soon ensued he displayed that utter recklessness of danger which had been the distinguishing trait of his ancestors in the first battle when discomfiture and flight were spreading through his ranks the proud count refused to retire one step before his foes he was surrounded overmatched his horse killed from under him and he fell covered with twenty-two wounds in the midst of the piles of mangled bodies which strewed the ground he was afterwards dragged from among the dead insensible and apparently lifeless and conveyed to his tent where his vigorous constitution and that energetic vitality which seemed to characterize his race triumphed over wounds whose severity rendered their cure almost miraculous francis i in his report of the battle extolled in the most glowing terms the prodigies of valour which guise had displayed war desolating war still ravaged wretched europe and guise with his untiring energy became so prominent in the court and the camp that he was regarded rather as an ally of the king of france than as his subject his enormous fortune his ancestral renown the vast political and military influences which were at his command made him almost equal to the monarch whom he served francis lavished honours upon him converted one of his counties into a dukedom and as duke of guise young claude of lorraine had now attained the highest position which a subject could occupy years of conflagration carnage and woe rolled over war deluged europe during which all the energies of the human race seemed to be expended in destruction and in almost every scene of smouldering cities of ravaged valleys of battlefields rendered hideous with the shouts of onset and shrieks of despair we see the apparition of the stalwart frame of guise scarred and war-worn and blackened with the smoke and dust of the fray riding upon his proud charger wherever peril was most imminent as if his body were made of iron at one time he drove before him in most bloody rout a numerous army of germans the fugitives spreading over leagues of country fled by his own strong castle of neuchateau antoinette and the ladies of her court stood upon the battlements of the castle 
gazing upon the scene to them so new and to them so pleasantly exciting as they saw the charges of the cavalry trampling the dead and the dying beneath their feet as they witnessed all the horrors of that most horrible scene which earth can present a victorious army cutting to pieces its flying foes with shouts of applause they animated the ardour of the victors the once fair-faced boy had now become a veteran his bronzed cheek and sinewy frame attested his life of hardship and toil the nobles were jealous of his power the king was annoyed by his haughty bearing but he was the idol of the people in one campaign he caused the death of forty thousand protestants for he was the devoted servant of mother church claude the butcher was the not inappropriate name by which the protestants designated him his brother john attained the dignity of cardinal of lorraine claude with his keen sword and john with his pomp and pride and spiritual power became the most relentless foes of the reformation and the most valiant defenders of the catholic faith the kind-heartedness of the wealthy but dissolute cardinal and the prodigality of his charity rendered him almost as popular as his warlike brother when he went abroad his valet de chambre invariably prepared him a bag filled with gold from which he gave to the poor most freely his reputation for charity was so exalted that a poor blind mendicant to whom he gave gold in the streets of rome overjoyed at the acquisition of such a treasure exclaimed surely thou art either christ or the cardinal of lorraine End of section fourteen